0: Managing Editor of Farm Equipment. Welcome to Farm Equipment's Used Equipment Remarketing Roadmaps podcast. In this episode, brought to you by Iron Solutions, host Casey Seymour of Moving Iron LLC talks with Aaron Fintel, a remarketing specialist for 21st Century Equipment, and his father, Dave Fintel, marking Casey's 90th episode of the Moving Iron podcast. If you're tuning in for the first time, I'd encourage you to subscribe via iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, or TuneIn Radio. By subscribing, you're alerted when each upcoming episode is released. Before we turn things over to Casey, a quick word from Iron Solutions, who's making this podcast a reality. Iron Solutions provides dealers with an array of lifecycle management services that drive sales and profits. Their Iron Search and Iron Guides are all about managing your dealership more efficiently and profitably, while Iron Search allows you to directly showcase your equipment online to a wider universe of buyers. Visit www.ironsolutions.com today. Casey, Aaron, and Dave start things off talking about Dave's fam- how Dave's family managed through the downturn in the 1980s and how Dave's grandfather was somewhat of an early-day equipment jockey. They also talk about how farming in the 70s was when Dave got his start compared to the agriculture world of today.
1: My guests on this episode are Aaron Finnell and his dad, Dave Finnell. And Aaron wanted to... He called number 90 a long time ago because he wanted to... Uh, Aaron, you need to explain that one because... Of all the numbers in the world to be like a positive number or a a big number for you, explain to everybody why number 90 is the one you wanted.
2: Well, for obvious reasons, if you're a farm kid with a a good head on your shoulders, because the premier tractor manufacturer up until 1983 had a tractor in the early and mid-60s called the Massey Ferguson Super 90. And when I was a child... We had one, and it was kind of the go-to tractor on the farm and had a level pair with one ever since. So, because of the Super 90 and having one on the farm as a kid and everything
1: else, the man responsible for that is on this podcast, too. So, Aaron, your dad is on here, Dave, yep. Dave Fennel, And, Dave, uh, yep. I've, I've had the pleasure of meeting you a couple times, and it's always been a pleasure. Why don't you tell everybody a little bit of your background and, and – uh, How long you've been farming and and where your love for equipment comes from?
3: Well, I have lived in the Dessler area my whole life. I've never even had an address other than Dessler. And started farming full-time right out of high school, which, looking back, probably wasn't all that smart, but that's what I did. Then uh, farmed with my brother for a while, and then the family sold the farm, and then I went to work for a... Fertilizer and chemical dealer in Dallas for, for a few years, and then I had a farmer offer me a job and, and work for him and his family, and I've been there ever since, and that's been uh, right at 20 years or so. Yeah.
1: So you've worked for the same farm for the last 20 years then? Yeah. Okay, so let's let's kind of go back over that a little bit, and let's talk about some of your memories from farming in the early days. So talk about how you got the farm started, how, you know, your dad Started farming out there, and, and what that looked like, and how that whole thing kind of came together, and what are some of the good times you remember early on, and and, and you know what was it like going through the eighties out there in Deschanel, Nebraska?
3: Well, when I was in uh, junior high, Thanksgiving vacation was always spent combining Milo with a twenty-one A Massey Harris combine and no cab. It, life was good. You just sat there and you eat that dirt all day long. <laughs> And then in the the eighties, it, it was it was kind of tough, but it we we didn't have it near as bad as a lot of guys did.
1: And what was some of the what were some of the factors in the in during the eighties where you say you know you didn't have as bad as some of the guys did? What what were some of the factors there on the farm that that kept that from being such a bad time for it?
3: Well, my uh, dad and grandpa they had they had all the ground was paid for except for one quarter. Yeah. yeah. That, that helped the bridge
1: that makes a big difference makes a big difference that makes a real big difference so when you were uh, tell me about that on the combine that, that always I see those pictures you know those black and white pictures of guys out there on, on the, the cabless, uh combines and they got a handkerchief around their face and they're just blowing and going and explain that experience to me
3: uh, it was awful <laughs> <laughs> you really hope for a win because otherwise you just You know, no cab and the house is right there in front of you. And oh, you just eat that dirt all day long. And you had a hanky rupture on your face and your head was pulled up. And you didn't dare move your neck because anything that went in there would just sift down to your shirt or down to your belt and it just kept building up. So, yeah, I would never do it again. Yeah,
1: (laughs) I can understand that. I can definitely understand that. So, Talk about a little bit of the diversification you had in your farm. You got, you know, you grew up in Deschler, and I, I drive through that area, and it's a heavily irrigated corn and, and beans and milo and, and wheat and everything out there. So talk about the early days in your farm and, and some diversification you had out there.
3: Well, when, when my uh, dad and grandpa were farming, we had, well, we had about everything. At one point, we had milo uh, and wheat and oats and dryland corn and alfalfa and cattle and hogs and sheep chickens Chicken.
1: so I see where where Aaron gets his love for the sheep from
3: the, the chickens that' was grandma's project
1: Yeah. So. Yep. yeah the sheep the sheep pretty damn deeply rooted buddy that's all you talk about when, when we're not on here <laughs> if you're not talking about equipment you're talking about sheep so that's uh kind of how that works but <laughs> so Dave I mean there's there's a lot of guys out there that are that are farmers but they're not necessarily equipment guys and there's a lot of equipment guys that aren't necessarily farmers either but you're 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 a combination of both, and I, and I really find that to be, I don't want to say it's a, an oddity by any means, but your, uh, your knowledge of farm equipment and just how, how deep that runs in you is always something I've found very impressive. And, and now, I mean, Aaron is a walking encyclopedia of the same stuff, so talk about your love of equipment That's and where work.
3: that comes from. It kind of started with uh, my well, Hanna. He would uh, go to sales and buy something and use it for a little bit, and then he'd He'd sell it, and he always—he was kind of an like an early day jockey in a way. I mean, he he uh he would buy and sell a lot of stuff, that you know, not not like the main tractors and stuff, and but it was always uh just little odds and ends stuff that we used part time, you might say.
1: So he spent most of his day on the internet surfing around trying to find people to buy buy equipment. <laughs>
2: It's, yeah, it should be called
3: Marks Lift. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, uh, telephone service until the mid-70s was a crank with an operator in town, so yeah. the internet was kind of sparse.
1: Yeah, I can imagine. So talk about his process that he went through. I mean, I'm sure you're pretty young then and, and, and probably don't remember a lot of, of, of how he did it, but you know, back in the day when you know, we look at it now, it's pretty simple to go buy and sell a piece of equipment. I mean, it, it doesn't take much. You just got to put the deal together, right? as far as making the contact goes, so what was it like then i mean like you said he was kind of an early day jockey how, how was he you know using the equipment then how did he find the buyers on the other end were they just people from town or did he you know did he have a little lot in town or how, how'd that work
3: no he's uh everything was done out at the farm he uh man he, i don't even know who these people were or how he got a hold of them or anything but he he could always get rid of you know what, what he wanted to get rid of and that, I I just didn't under, I really don't understand how how he did it, but yeah. and he he was kind of into uh, like four wheel drive trucks, like the old army trucks and stuff. And yeah. I know he he had a friend up in Lincoln that would find those for him, and then he'd bring them home and we'd park them and never to be used again. So.
1: Right.
3: Like old- so when I
2: was a little boy, those trucks were still
1: around, and that was a pretty badass playground. I can imagine you talking like those old Deuce and a half? Like, we had big, like, troop-moving type trucks? Is that what you're talking about?
2: Well, yeah. We had, like, a six—what was that boom truck? was a 6 by 6 GMC. Yeah. Was, an old 6 by 6 GMC with a boom on it from and the, the 40s, 40s. From the 40s. And what was that? There was that manure spreader truck. That was the same thing when I was a Chevy. Oh, yeah. Old four-wheel drive Chevy with a manure box and old power wagons. The old power wagons.
1: Yeah, back when they were cool.
2: Oh, yeah. yeah. And there was, what, F-20s and yeah. an M and uh, just all kinds of shit. Old mini, or the mini combine, right? Full-type
3: mini okay. combine?
2: Full-type yeah. mini apples combine and just all
3: kinds of shit. When we had farm sale, we had uh, five old massive combines, and two of them were 21s, and three of them were 21As. The, the 21s had a draper head on them, which was... Now I guess it's hot stuff. Yeah. Ironically
1: <laughs> enough.
3: Yep. And back in the day
1: they
2: said this drapery is worth the shit. I want an auger.
1: Yeah, you can Yeah, that's funny how that's split because the drapery market is, is far and away the the preferred head out there now. So anyway, growing yep. up on the farm, you know, growing up on the farm like you did, doing the different stuff that you did on the farm. What were some of the favorite machines that you had out there with that uh, working with your dad? Oh man. Well, One of my favorite tractors that we had
2: was we had a a 4840 four-wheel-drive Massey that in its day was, it was like 80, 81, something like that. You know, they had a big square cab on them and all this room, and they were far and away. They were as nice as a Steiger, but better because they were Massey. I never, you know, I was a little tight, so I didn't, Ever d- operate it, but this is a good old Super ninety. That was that was my rig. Whenever we'd haul hay or whatever, Dad would be on the eleven thirty, and I'd be on the ninety, and up and down the road, and moving bales and doing
1: whatever with that thing. Has that always been your favorite part of the farm? Is the equipment part of the side of it, or is it? I mean, what what is the what's your favorite part of, of farming?
3: Yeah, yeah, I've I've always enjoyed. Work, working on the equipment and that kind of stuff. So I I enjoy the livestock too, but now I work for a guy that's got hogs and hogs and more hogs, and some some days it's all right and some days it isn't. Right.
1: <laughs> Just depends on what you're doing, right? Yeah, that's right. Yep. That's where the
2: walking encyclopedia, machinery encyclopedia, all started from. <laughs>
1: okay, we'll talk about that a little bit. Talk about what, what, you know, growing up, what it was like hanging out with your dad and, and, and doing all that stuff. Well, I could remember as a kid, anytime,
2: you know, if it was a weekend or I happened to be home or something like that, and we had to run for parts, I would clean out the literature rack, okay? And I would bring that stuff home and look at every picture and read about half of it. And it didn't matter what color it was, what, you know, cause between, even though we were mathy guys, you know, we had short lines from the deer place or we had short lines from IH and Alice and you, you know, you just make the rounds of these dealerships getting parts and what have you and cleaning out the literature rack and, you know, flipping through it and being like, dad, check this out, dad, check this out. And I even, well, and if I was with my mom, you know, if we went, if I was with mom that day and she had to run to Walmart or something, I would make her stop at the dealerships, run in quick, grab some literature, and we'd take off. So I was, uh, it was, and it's just always been there. And it was, you know, I remember a picture when I was, a, you know, I wasn't even one yet of dad reading farm journal and holding me in his arm, and I'm actually looking at the magazine course. You know, I wasn't even one-year-old, so who knows. And that was always my favorite picture. And Greg Peterson's always, find that picture, find that picture. But moms and moms look for it, she can't find it. But anyway, so that's where I was from. Man, I was doing that when I was five, six years old. And when I was in, I think, third grade, We did a project writing business letters to companies. So naturally, what do I do? I wrote to Massey. I wrote to Case IH. I wrote to Deere. I wrote to Deutz-Illis. You know, all these different companies requesting their old literature. Because I could go into any place and get the new stuff. And ironically enough, Deere, I never heard back from Case, by the way. (laughs) John Deere sent me everything of their current stuff, like cotton pickers and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, that was pretty cool. Dude's Alice, no, I take that back. They were Agco by then, so it must have been fifth grade. They were Agco then, and they sent me all their current stuff, but like a load of posters. A lot of people might not know this, but like the R52, R62 Gleaner, they made a they made that same combine in a white label version called the 2500 and 2600, and they sent me the coolest damn poster. I still have it. It's in my garage at home, and it's a black background with a with a 2600 white combine parked over dry ice, you know, so, like, the fog's coming up, and then in the fog, it says, Roe Warrior. Cool as shit. And then... God bless them for this very day. Matthew Ferguson sent me every piece of literature from the 70s and 80s, early 80s, the specific stuff I asked for. They sent it all to me, and I had just a mountain at this point of literature in my room, okay? And at some point, and Dad and I like to tease my mom about this all the time, she cleaned my room one day and threw it all away. Threw away your literature? It was, it was, she did. She threw it all away. It was very traumatic. I can imagine. So now,
1: your mom found it. So now I buy it on
2: eBay. When yeah, yeah, Now I buy that old stuff on eBay and I had it for free once upon a time. So that's where that's where I got it from. I remember, you know, just being a little kid and just. Constantly. Well, I've even said on the podcast before. You know, I think that first one we did when you were still working down south, and you know, two of my heroes as a little pity boy were two of our salesmen. For Pete's sake, oh yeah, you know, yeah. that's kind of a right. That's kind of a right on the wall of the oil right there. You Had the, uh, the Matthew guy and the IH
1: guy had the gold chain, the rattlesnake boots. Yeah, I remember that guy.
2: Yep. Oh yeah. So, Dave, how, how real
3: deal, man?
1: No, Dave. When you look back at, you know, you've been in this game for a while now. How long have you been farming? Oh,
3: basically since seventy three.
1: Okay. <clears throat> so, how thing? How have things changed when you start looking at just the way that you how, how you look at equipment now? How thing? How how have things changed from the early seventies to here we are in twenty eighteen?
3: Well, there's absolutely no comparison. Now it you're basically just one jump away from not even having to sit in the seat of a tractor. So
1: (laughs) that's coming soon. Uh,
3: I I really don't care for that myself, but that's I can see where that that that's what it's coming to. so. So I always give these guys a hard time with their auto steer and all that stuff. I says you know, there's they're just it used to be when you had to follow that mark and stuff, you took pride in what you was doing. Now you sit in the seat, you push resume, and away you go. So, I prefer to do it the old way.
1: You like you like the old markers out there on the outside of your planter, huh?
3: Well, until you get too close to the fence, but. <laughs> <laughs> right on, man. But at, at least you know. I you know I'm I'm not complaining about all this new stuff, but you know, like I said, there there was pride involved in just seeing how straight you could drive. So and now you can look out the back window all day like too. yep
1: i've got a i've have a couple uncles that are that are plumbers and one of them said the other day you know, I was, he was talking about something and it sounds just like what you're saying you know he was like used to have to be a craftsman there's a craft involved with plumbing and 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 today now you just run a line from every every faucet down to the main water line and and it's just that simple there's no there's no soldering of anything or running running pipe like you like you used to it's just you're in a plastic hose from point A to point B and you're done. Because it's just these kids these days don't know, understand how hard it used to be to be a plumber. There is a lot of truth to that because I you know, and Aaron, we, we see this a lot. We talk to we talk to service managers a lot back home, you know, back here in our at the dealership, and the buzzers going off telling them to shut down the, the tractor because something's about to blow up and they'll keep running it. And let the auto track go down, they'll stop and wait for something to come out and fix that part.
2: Oh, absolutely! <clears throat> <laughs> absolutely it makes me laugh. The first, oh yeah, I remember selling a planner to a guy. Man, this would have been like, say, around oh five, oh six, maybe, maybe oh seven, middle the middle two thousands, ten years ago, and we we're sitting there building the planter, specking it out, and I, I said, "Well, you want markers, right?" No, I got guidance. I said, "Well, what if the guidance isn't working?" Well, then I ain't gonna plan. I was like, well, okay then. I guess that's that. And from and I get it, you know, from the modern world, he wants
1: that data and all that business and all that. But damn, man, and if you got a plan, you got a plan. True, true, they would well, Dave, when you look at that now, so in there, we're collecting data for everything. You know, we're collecting data for soil type and and moisture and and you know yield maps and you know your population and so, I mean, just collecting data upon data upon data. What's your take on that, and, and how do you think that's changed farming?
3: I think there is a point where you can collect so much of that crap, you, it makes your head spin, you don't know what to do with it. But as far as the guy I work for, we variable rate planting, we variable rate fertilizer, and fall off the soil test, and different soil types and all that. And it, it's made a vast difference. I mean, you know there's no need dumping a bunch of fertilizer on a bad spot. That's never going to make over 150 bushel an acre anyway. So it's made things a lot more efficient, but you, you just got to know how to use
1: it. That's, that's the key statement is understanding that data. I knew a guy once back when I was working in Kansas, I talked to him in the, and he'd come in every morning, and they would drink coffee around the table at the dealership. And there might be 10 or 15 of them in there at a time. And, uh, we were talking about something and somehow we got on data collection. He goes, man, I've been collecting data since 1993 and I don't know what to do with all the data that I have. And, then, and so you are talking to a guy that's got 20 some years worth of data and trying to figure out what to do with it. And I'm like, what well, have you, do you have like a consultant or something you talk with? Like, oh, I ain't gonna, I'm not going to give this guy all my data. I mean, why would I do that? And I'm like, then why do you collect it? Why do you collect it then? What are you doing with it? If You're not doing anything with it. You need, you know, just kind of a. Yeah, it makes a pretty map. It's got some cool colors on it, but you need to do something with that data
3: when you get it. Yeah, if you're you're not going to use it to your advantage, then don't even bother.
0: We'll get back to Casey and Aaron and Dave in a moment, but first a quick word from the company who made this podcast possible, Iron Solutions. Iron Solutions has deep roots in the ag industry with products for producers, dealers, manufacturers, ag retailers, and service providers. Visit www.ironsolutions.com to see solutions that streamline your operations, improve productivity, reduce costs, and speed your growth. Casey, Aaron, and Dave left things off talking about Data's role in agriculture today and how the business of farming has changed over the last several decades. Now here's Casey with a quick message about moving iron.
1: Hello, I'm Casey Seymour, and I want to thank Farm Equipment Magazine for partnering with me to bring you the Farm Equipment Podcast Series, Use Equipment Remarketing Roadmaps. The podcasts are taken from my weekly podcast, Moving Iron Podcast. Moving Iron Podcast is a podcast designed for ag equipment dealers by ag equipment dealers. The weekly podcast focuses on current events and trends across the ag equipment marketplace in North America. Along with dealers, I interview the biggest names in the ag industry. Chip Nellinger of Blue Reef Ag Marketing is a regular guest talking about commodity markets and risk management. You can also hear guests like Greg Machinery Pete Peterson and Tyne Morgan of the US Farm Report. If you are in the ag equipment business or have an interest in the ag equipment business, this is a must listen for you. You can find the podcast at MovingIronLLC.com, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, and SoundCloud. Also at MovingIronLLC.com, you can find information on the 2018 Moving Iron Summit in Las Vegas, past and current episodes of Moving Iron Podcast, and articles from the Moving Iron blog. Throughout the year, there will be guest bloggers writing on various topics from their point of view. You can hit me up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Moving Iron LLC, or you can find me on LinkedIn. And if you would like, you can send me an email at Moving Iron Podcast at MovingIronPodcast.com. So until next time, let's go move some iron. This is Casey Seymour, out.
0: Thanks, Casey. Let's get back to the program now and listen in as Casey, Aaron, and Dave discuss how yields and farming practices have changed in the 45 years that Dave's been farming.
1: So you got forty five years there. I mean, the ground the ground you're farming, I mean that area, how have yields changed over over the forty five years that you've been farming?
3: There's very little very little dry land left. You know, if, if there's groundwater underneath it, it's being used. Yeah. And you gotta look pretty hard to find irrigation pipe anymore because everything's got a pivot on it. Yeah. And uh, with yields I never really did grow too much corn. We we had a few. Well, we had what two pivots at one point, and we had corn on there, But now it's and to start with, we had Milo, Milo and beans. Yeah, that was a stupid move. But <laughs> there's uh the the yields nowadays are. Uh, if you're if you're not two fifty or better on the corn, you're, you're doing something wrong. And a lot of the beans we've been able to six. Sixty is kind of average. Try try to shoot for seventy to eighty bushel.
1: Your first, very first corn crop you grew all by yourself. Do you remember that? Yeah. What was your yield?
3: Yield was one hundred ninety bushel.
1: Was that irrigated or was that dry land? Yeah. 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 Irrigated. Irrigated. And what were some of the biggest mistakes you made in that very first crop? I mean, that's a pretty good number, one hundred ninety, but. Yeah, because that would have been, what, like, 87, 87? Yeah, something like
2: that. He irrigated with a ranky pivot, that's in Nebraska.
1: Yeah. Well, in 87, there was a hell of a drought in 1987, 1988. At least my neck of the woods there was anyway. 88, yeah. I
3: remember that when I was a kid. Yeah, we really didn't do anything special. Just not, now we don't even work any ground outside of, you know, well, we started irrigated a few pivot corners, and then we ridged them, and, Then we have to work them in the spring because we, 24 row planter will not stay on top of the ridge. So so that's all we work. Everything else nowadays is no-till. And back then we disc everything twice. And and, uh, when I was a kid, then you had to, you kept working it till you could get through with a crest buster. So everything was like a garden. And then when it got dry, it it just smoked everything. Growing
1: up, do you know what a crust buster is, Kansas boy? Yeah, bust the crust, bro. Hello, okay, that's that's right there in the the, title.
2: Well, it's something kind of damn
1: specific. So, (laughs) how long when you were growing up, did you use like moldboard plows and all that kind of stuff to work the ground? Or did you have, I mean, what was your was that deep, you know, rolling dirt? Is that what you guys doing? I didn't do that. Did
3: you plow? Growing, growing up, oh. did we plow and black dirt? When I was a young kid, yeah, we, we plowed all the week around. And then when I got old enough to plow, my grandpa my grandpa would lead, I would be in the middle, and then my dad would follow, and everybody had a plow. We were going around the field. And then I got old enough that I could plow by myself, and I got sent out to the field to plow this wheat field. And by the end of the day, I had that whole that square quarter was in a circle. <laughs> I, I don't know what I did, but my dad spent a whole day out there making a square into a square again, <laughs> and I never played again. That was it. <laughs> that's funny. So
1: looking back on the
2: planners. see that's why like, that's like good to hear these stories years later because if I did that. It would still be brought up.
1: Well, there's a lot of things that you do. There's a lot of things that you do that still get brought up. Well, that's very
0: true.
2: (laughs) That's right. When I was a kid, we plowed. I remember plowing one time. We borrowed somebody's plow. No, we had that one. What was that, Massey or Kate plow? Massey plow? We had both. Okay. On the 11.55 that one time. Right? That was yeah, that massive plow, 880? 88. 88. So there was there was very little plowing when I was a a pup. But we had cool shit like chisels and V blades. What we call in our country, Casey, a sweep. You know, yeah. we had one of them. There was that was
1: few and far between in this country when I was a kid. Yeah, they they're few and far between in that country, except for like one pocket of the world, bro. Well, uh, what a thirty-mile radius. About four stores. That's about it. <laughs> right, right. The land time Dying to, well God. to Burlington to Flagler. Yeah, they still use that's and they use them and they're worth their weight in gold in that little area. Outside of that area, they're not worth yeah. anything. It's amazing how that how that works. So, Dave, let me ask you this question. This is something I've always wanted to ask, a guy. When you uh, looking when you're farming and you're out there, how much stuff did you do that was uh, you know, kinda of like the flavor of the month thing. You know, you read it in a magazine somewhere and you went out and tried it and you know, tried to be an early adopter in technology and that kind of stuff. Not necessarily technology, but planting practices or something like that, you know. University of Nebraska rolled something new out, or K State rolled something new out, or whatever it was. How much of that stuff did you adopt? Like for example, I'm gonna plant my wheat instead of seven and a half inch centers, I'm gonna do I'm gonna do ten inch because, you know, Oklahoma State said they did a test plot and a 10-inch had better yield. How much of that stuff played in how you planted and, and worked your fields and those kind of things compared to just, you know, this is kind of the way we've always done it?
3: Well, we, I, I never really was too much into that. It, I just kind of figured, well, it, this way has worked in the past, and I don't know why it won't work today. But one thing we did do would, yeah, if the conditions were right, we would... Uh, Double crop the wheat stubble with sunflowers. Yeah, you know, I guess that was that was about as far out as out there as I ever got, really.
2: Well, you planted that no-till dryland corn on the
3: in the wheat stubble. That was no. and that was double crop, right? No, 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 no. That was just wheat stubble. That was planted into triticale stubble. Oh, um, after we mowed that off out right here. Yeah, we we grew some triticale. For a guy for seed, and that is the most fun stuff combine ever. It gets about six foot tall, and you cut it off four inches above the ground. (laughs) You just chew it all through there.
1: Yeah, that's that's a new. uh, I don't say it's new, but here here of late, it's been a uh, a lot of guys have planted that to chop into into silage, and there's a lot of a lot more more triticale dropping dropping. Jumping into the scene, you start looking at, you know, custom cutters out there in the harvest run. You ever wanted to do that, Dave? You ever want to go on the harvest run?
3: Yes, I I really did, but too late now.
1: No, oh, it's never too late.
3: Oh yeah, yeah, I ain't not, ain't never gonna put up an old man like me. <laughs> I bet th- I bet
1: we could find somebody. There's probably somebody gonna listen to this podcast. I bet
3: they'd be shocked. They'd be like, "Holy, this guy
2: actually greases things." <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, they I bet we could find somebody. I bet well, someone listening to the podcast there, and they're going to give you. They're going to give you a call.
3: And I know how to set an eight fifty massive, but I'll, they're, they're probably live their life on the harvest run day now. Yeah. So I
2: win the lottery.
1: <laughs> yeah, you. We're loading up. You go. You go run the eight fifty Massey out there. It's the first time it breaks, you're going to be like, oh god, I can't finish the run now because I can't find parts.
2: Oh shit! We got mount Oak,
1: Kansas to get parts. Well, you can definitely do that. There's no doubt about that.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think I think every building downtown has got every part Massey ferkins has ever ever made, sitting in someplace in every abandoned building. There downtown. you
2: go. Plus, if I win the lottery and I'm spending money on early '80s Massey Comlines, I got plenty of money to fill van trailers with my own parts. Well,
1: you could do that. Have your own mobile parts on site.
2: Yeah. Well, I, something else that we did before a lot of people were doing it was ridge till. Yeah, that's true, but I couldn't keep the planer on the ridge. Doesn't work with a full type planer Because Matthew's got so much power, you just drag that planer and just float in air, see?
3: hmm <laughs> we, we had the guidance wheels on it and everything, and Finally, I, I, I just gave up but through the field. I just dropped the marker down and followed the mark, and somehow the planter ended up on top of the ridge if I'd follow the mark. I I don't know how it worked to this day, but if I followed the mark with the planter, the planter was on top of the ridge.
1: That's because of that Pride and Rose thing. Because huh. of that craft Casey's talking about. Yeah, there you go. Dave, you still watch a lot of auctions? You get a lot of auctions in the area?
3: Oh, not too many. I I I go to a few, but I I I used to go to more, but it gets old standing around. I I don't I don't want to buy anything anyway, so there's really no way to go going. I can sit at home in my recliner and drink coffee just as well as I can stand there and freeze. That's true.
1: I've been to plenty of those auctions standing out there, and, and it's it's uh, quite miserable.
2: He did go to two auctions this spring, though, for... He did do a little order buying for a certain somebody. <laughs> Here, go buy this go buy this piece of shit for me. And I'll haul it 400 miles home.
3: Yeah, one auction I went to, the guy had three combines, and the top dollar was 500 bucks. A fond memory I
2: have as a child that's equipment-related,
3: my mom
2: grew up in Lyman, Colorado, and... When I was, you know, oh man, I was pretty little. We would always, you know, we'd go out there at Christmas or sometime a holiday or whatever. And every once in a while dad would swing in he the yard and we'd drive around and oh, look at that. Oh, look at that. You know, as we got further west and there was different stuff driving through Western Kansas, Eastern Colorado. And we would always go check out the dealers in Lyman. Massy Dealer, south of town, right? Northeast. East. East. Mas- no, north. Northeast. Northeast. And the Deer Dealer was north, because yeah. I still drive by that. Yeah. Where it used to be. We always go to the Massy Dealer and the Deer Dealer and look around. And that. And I can remember one time, we saw a couple things that floored me. First of all, we went to the Deer Dealer, and there was a 4240 there with no 3 point, And I just could not get over the fact that that even existed. And there was a, what were they putting together? Was that a nine section? A nine by seven? 11, Eleven by seven V blade. Huge. Huge. That thing, it looked like an octopus rolling, you know, rolling down a hill. And then they had a, like a 9400 drill or something that was, you know, a 50 footer, 60 footer. And what I noticed, come back to grandma's house from our little tour, at the tire store, was a big bud getting tires put on it. That was awesome.
1: The old big bud. Was that before? That was before the factory burned down, right?
2: Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, several decades.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But that, for for me, that was better than going to Disney World and seeing Mickey Mouse,
1: man. You know when you're when you're that young and you're that passionate about something like that and then you wake, you get to move into a career that, that allows you to still do that every day and have that much fun. That's got to, that's got to be a neat feeling for you. Oh, absolutely. It, it's just a little bit weird, don't you think? <laughs> Slightly obsessed. Yeah, you're, uh, you're a wealth of knowledge but I see where you get it from. Your dad's got a Pretty good handle on on the equipment business and 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 necessarily the uh, the equipment part of the business.
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. And even though even though we were, you know, so massy when I was a kid, which apparently got very very deeply rooted to the marrow of my bones, way more than him. <laughs> but. It's not that, you know, it's whatever. Be like, oh, yeah, those have such and such, or this and that. And it's just like, holy shit. So I wouldn't I wouldn't know nothing if it wasn't for him.
1: Yep. No, that's, that's a true statement, fellas. So, well, I think we have got one heck of an introduction here, boys. So anything else you want to throw out there? That's what I can make of you, Dad.
3: Yep. Well, then I'm good.
1: All right, Aaron. Well if I'm uh if I'm out cruising the interwebs, how would I how would I hook up with Go Aaron Fentel?
2: At Aaron Fentel on Twitter. I'm on there far too much sometimes, but always on there. And uh, call me, text me on my cell phone 308 three oh eight seven six oh eleven
1: ninety three. And and Dave, what's your Twitter Twitter handle?
3: My Twitter handle is leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> if, if I have a foot phone
1: so get a hold of Dave, it's five 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 seven seven space zero three three one and you're in.
3: You're in Mike Flynn. Man, Dave, I appreciate you being on Yeah, my, my handle my handle is if I didn't call you, you don't need to call me.
1: <laughs> well Dave, I appreciate you being on the podcast, man.
3: Well thanks a lot. I enjoyed it. All right, man.
0: Thanks, Casey, Aaron, and Dave. We've got even more used equipment remarketing resources that we're sending your way. In addition to this podcast, we're also tapping into Casey's expertise across all our informational channels, including an Ask the Expert feature on our website where you can ask him your questions directly. Check it out at farm-equipment.com slash asktheexpert. Thanks once again to Iron Solutions for sponsoring this series iron solutions provides dealers like you with an array of life cycle management services that drive sales and profits the iron search and iron guides suite of solutions is all about managing each dealership more efficiently and profitably while iron search allows you to directly showcase your used equipment online to a wider universe of buyers visit www.ironsolutions.com if you haven't done so already you can subscribe to this podcast on itunes or the google play store to get an alert when future episodes are released You can also keep up on the latest industry news by registering online to receive our free newsletters. Visit www.farm-equipment.com. We hope you'll tune in with us for our next episode on September 20th. For Casey, Aaron, and Dave, as well as our entire staff here at Farm Equipment, I'm Kim Schmidt. Thanks for listening.